Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. All right, everyone. Good afternoon. It is the 12 o'clock hour, 12 p.m. noon, and um, we welcome you to another Florida FMDA Geriatric Journal Club. Um, today's date, September 21st, and we have a powerhouse for of a panel. I don't even know how much more to say, but um, very excited. We're going to talk about um, Baker acting in the SNFs. Um, we will be going into some depth, and I'm really excited given everything that we've been through, all of the challenges over the last, oh my gosh, what, three years more, <laughs> um, the staffing shortages that we're still going through, and to be happy this conversation, I think, um, is timely. We really need to talk about behavioral health in the nursing home space, and I'm going to start by inter- um I'm not going to introduce them because it's uh, it's just too much. <laughs> I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And if you haven't heard, we're, we're going to start with Dr. Eduardo Diaz, who is in Key West, or no, Key Largo, forgive me. You know, So Dr. Diaz, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Dr. Eduardo Diaz, and I'm the Florida Clinical Medical Director uh, for Florida, and I'm also the attending physician for Life Care Center of Altamont Springs. And I was formerly in the fire department prior to this, which I missed tremendously. So I hope I can give you some background on what the fire department did with the Baker Acts. All right, let's go to Amina. Good afternoon. Um, thank you. Um, it's such a privilege for me um, to be you know, part of the um, panel. My name is Amina Dobuson. I am the Vice President of Clinical Services with Ventura Services of Florida, currently overseeing um, nine SNF. Um, I am the Chair for the Florida Healthcare Senior Council and also second VP with Fadona. So been in long-term care for 25 plus. Perfect, perfect. Karen? My name is Karen Goldsmith. I'm an attorney in Florida, and I have represented the Florida Healthcare Association and long-term care providers for 42 years now. So I've kind of seen the evolution of the Baker Act and, and how it's been interpreted over the years. Thank you. Rachel. I think we might be missing Rachel. Let's go to Dr. Sullivan. Absolutely. My name is Greg Sullivan. I am a geriatric psychiatrist uh, providing psychiatric consultation uh, in a variety of settings uh, spanning skilled nursing, long-term care, emergency department, and then acute care med surge ICU rehab. 
and uh, serve as the program director for the Geriatric Psychiatry Fellowship at USF. All right, perfect. And you know, I had like all, a whole list of questions, but as everything often happens when we start talking in the, the, in the warm-up session of Journal Club, another question um, sometimes becomes the most relevant. So I wanna know if, um, and maybe we'll go to Karen first, can you explain the Baker Act um, and how that relates to Florida and what happens in other states? Okay, um, in Florida, we have a mental health statute, quite lengthy, by the way, um, but part of that is what's known as the Baker Act, and the Baker Act relates to situations where a person is a danger to themselves or others and has a mental overlay, and you'll hear more detail from the medical people, and um, they can be placed in a receiving facility, they can have outpatient care, depending on on the level of danger they are in the, in the level of their illness, um, even if they don't agree to do it for a period of time for analysis and assessment so that they can get the appropriate treatment. Um, the federal regulations for nursing homes also talks about, um, doesn't talk about Baker Act, but it talks about uh, whether a facility has to take back a person who has certain mental health issues. And, um, and I, I probably will discuss that a little bit later, talk about transfer and discharge. Uh, and the definition in the state law and the definition of the federal law are almost identical. Uh, both of them recognize that a primary diagnosis of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, is probably not appropriate for Baker acting an individual. Uh, unless there is such a serious mental health issue that it overrides the dementia. But basically, facilities are expected to deal with the, the dementia patients in their own environment and they are to properly assess them before they admit them and to properly assess their building to ensure that they have the resources available to take care of behavioral problems in-house, that they know how to identify triggers, that people are trained, that people know when an individual has a trigger that could cause them to become dangerous, how to respond to that. Um, their facility assessment, which is a federal requirement, also requires that they know that they have the proper staff to care for people. So if they do it right at the beginning, the Baker Act should be the exception rather than the rule, and that should only occur when you've got a very unusual circumstance and your residents or your staff are at risk or the resident herself. Um, the, most states have something similar to the Baker Act. Um, I certainly can't speak to 49 other states, but I do know that we're all required to follow the federal regulations and the federal regulations uh, are a lot of what you're going to hear today from professionals in Florida. Thank you. Thank you for that. So for the sake of this discussion, I would really like us to talk through what the process um, around the Baker Act and our SNFs, what that process is. And um, I think Amina, I'm going to start that off, that question off with you. Can you describe the process? Thank you. Very good questions, because sometimes we find out that many of us may really 
don't know what is the process, the step, what, are, what is the law, things that the must follow. But before I go to the process, because Karen mentioned something that's very important, the assessment you need to do of those residents, the identification of what triggers those behavior. Because before we can get to the Baker Act, if we can identify what triggers somebody to have certain behavior, how to deal with it and teach our staff, we can minimize, decrease the amount of Baker Act because a lot of them will be able to take care inside of the facility versus doing the Baker Act. So for example, if somebody just get a behavior that that's not the normal, we wanna make sure the, the nursing team, they do a proper assessment. We will have to make sure we rule out, it's not something medical going on. Does the patient has an infection? Is the patient in pain? It is it something the patient need that, you know, trigger that behavior. We need to take the time going to that. Of course, first and foremost, you wanted the patient to be safe and the safety of the other resident. It might take for you to remove this patient, put this um, resident in a room, having a one-to-one -one while you're doing the assessment and see what's going on to de-escalate it. So before we can go straight to the Baker Act. Now, let's see, we do all that. It's none of this. It's somebody that we know whether it was not the trigger, you do whatever the intervention that you would normally do if the person have, and the person is truly, you know, a danger to self or danger to others. Okay, of course, you're gonna need to call the physician, let them know what's going on. But we have to start that who can properly assess and Baker Act. Okay, so it's either he can be the medical um, physician, the primary physician can, you can have the psychiatry, you can have the clinical psychologist, you can have a licensed clinical social worker, you can have a psychiatric nurse, and the last, when you don't have any of those in Florida, law enforcement, you know, can also baker up. So there's supposed to be a proper assessment done by those providers saying yes, based on the documentation. That's another thing, the nurse that's calling that, you need to properly document what were, you know, what are the behaviors that make that patient at risk or it's even, you know, um, hurt themselves or others. That's exactly what they do. They took a nap, they were running after the staff. You know, I, you might think that sounds crazy. One of them trying, you know, to struggle, you know, um, a, a staff, I mean, those cap can be serious because you can maybe you're not able to de-escalate. So now that needs to be done by the proper provider. So, and then that form need to be complete entirely, properly. Now you do that. Then the other thing that's very important is the transportation. By law, it is the law. We must call the law enforcement. Now, when law enforcement, you know, come, they can say, yes, it's okay. The patient can go via, you know, regular transportation. You would have to make sure you, you get all, you know, the card of the um, law enforcement that show up to the facility. You want to keep a copy of the Baker Act. And it's good if you can call uh, because they, by law, they have, that's another thing. They have to take them to the nearest hospital, just like when you have a 911 situation. 
it's not the family member that can determine where they want their loved one to go because if they're really endangered, they have to take them to the nearest one. And if it's good, you can communicate and making sure they know this is the issue. This is the behavior because this patient truly would need to be examined when they get there and get the proper care. Most of the time, this patient will, keep, it will stay there for like 72 hours or so to be examined and then they can look whatever the treatment and you know send the patient back. What we have to know from our from long-term care is the acute care setting, which the physician will talk about that, is not there to just keep the patient for weeks and weeks to treat before they can send back. It's unfortunate. We don't have that luxury. Because even for people that's outpatient out there, they don't keep them forever because they'll have to refer them for an outpatient if they need long-term care treatment. So coming to us then from those behavior, there's a lot of works that we're gonna have to do because we, like Karen just explaining, we're gonna have to take, it's not like we've said, okay, you were trying to hit another resident, I cannot have you here. Now you're just gonna have to have plans when the patient come to protect the other resident as well. Cause you have to make sure you protect the other patient. Yeah. And yeah. Emil, let me jump in because I want to bring Dr. Diaz into the um, the conversation, uh, given his role as medical director and the former role as paramedic, because you, you, you touched on a very interesting point about the transportation. And I, I'm just curious, like what really, when we're seeing this and happening, I don't remember my patients going with law enforcement. I remember my residents were going via with the paramedics and um, my heart rate was at 150 because somebody called me and said they did, they, my um, resident was Baker acted. And I was like, how do you Baker act my demented a little old woman? So Dr. Diaz, can you jump in and, and tell us like the process as you've lived through it? So back in the day when I was with the fire department and that was a long time ago, uh, the, the fire department would, we didn't have any problems transporting Baker act patients. However, as Amina uh, alluded to earlier, if you look at the, the actual statutes, it actually states that law enforcement is supposed to transport. Now, she's also right in the sense that the, the police officer has the ability to make an assessment once he arrives, whether he needs a transport in a police vehicle or it can go through a private ambulance company and so forth. The, the, and I can tell you that in the 12 years that I've been with this particular building, I have Baker acted one person was a voluntary Baker Act. So we didn't talk about that. We talked about mostly involuntary, but the patient agreed to go to the facility. She was clearly hallucinating. She clearly made the comment that she wanted to hurt herself. She was ambulatory. She was mobile, which is another factor in the nursing home because dementia patients who are bed bound, common sense will dictate they don't have the means to hurt themselves. They don't have the ability to hurt others because they can't get out of bed. They're not mobile. But this particular patient was mobile. So she was sent to the uh, psych facility. They go directly to the psych facility. And I think one of the mistakes that some people make in nursing homes is that they send them to the emergency room. Um, in the research that I have done recently, uh, basically, if there is a medical need, it is truly not a Baker Act per se. If the behavior is medically related, the patient should be worked up for medical uh, reasons for delirium, if you will. Um, however, if there is a mental illness and this particular patient did in fact have a history of psychosis and was claiming to wanting to hurt herself and had the ability to do so, 
she was sent in. Now, she spent a little more than 72 hours there because she was put on medications to actually stabilize her. And then she was there for about a week and then came back. And that was probably about six, seven years ago. And she's been stable ever since. So there's a lot of factors in the nursing home. It's never clear what it should be or shouldn't be. Now, I was able to speak to one of the chiefs in the EMS fire division that works around my building. And they basically said, we, we'd be more than happy to transport Baker Axe if need be. We work in coordination with the police department in the event that the uh, patient becomes aggressive, they either put a police officer within the ambulance or they follow the ambulance to the hospital and so forth. But again, in the 12 years that I've been in this building, I've had one case, it was a voluntary case because most of the times that I would get called in for a Baker Act, uh, nine times out of 10, if, if, if I could even say it was 10 times out of 10, it did not require transport for stabilization of any issue because the patients tend to lose their independence. They've lost their homes, their spouses. They get very despondent. They, they tell you, I don't wanna live anymore. And it has nothing to do with them actually wanting to kill themselves is that they have lost so much that they feel helpless. And if you do it right and you talk to them and you assess correctly, you can deal with that right then and there. It doesn't have to go into a facility or be Baker Acted and so forth. Um, but for the most part, the transportation, according to the law, should be a law enforcement officer. He has the right to, um, uh, you know, have the fire department or a private ambulance company, depending on the state of the patient. Uh, again, the fire department in my particular area is more than happy to, to, to work with us and, and transport the patient to the facilities. And again, as Amina mentioned earlier, the closest appropriate facility for that patient. Dr. Sullivan, can you weigh in as a psychiatrist? Um, are, are there, have there been um, times where you were the one initiating the Baker Act in that nursing home and how did that process work on that end of it? I, I will say I've been lucky enough to uh, have had opportunities to intervene before having to place a, a Baker Act from the, the nursing home itself. Now, in, in other settings, certainly that's been the case. And, and it's frequently in, in a setting where, you know, some of, the, some of the factors that have already been discussed where there are staff who are unfamiliar with this particular patient or this particular behaviors, or it's a situation or a setting where the infrastructure does not exist to ensure that safety can be, can be guaranteed. Uh, many times it's... Uh, it comes down to a very pragmatic difference, as Dr. Diaz pointed out, discussions of mortality versus true suicidality. That is, you know, I, I, I want to award him honorary board certification in psychiatry because that, uh, that, that's sort of 75% of, of what we do as psychiatrists. It's, it's simply asking those follow-up questions and, and asking, you know, what is, where is this thought process really coming from and, and what is the intent behind it? Because in, in those settings, when, when you can have that conversation, then you can also identify what, what struggles exist, what, how can this inform my treatment planning going forward and inform how I relate this information to, to, to the nursing staff, to the, to the um, administrative staff who are, who are really overseeing the care of this patient. And I think you, you all bring up um, 
a good point. And it, it makes me think, you know, the climate has changed. The world has changed. Um, I mentioned earlier, we are having, there, there are staffing shortages. And the people who were there for maybe five years, they're not there anymore. Um, it may be an agency nurse who does not know um, that resident very well. Uh, what, what, are the, what role do we as clinicians, medical directors, the, the behavioral health specialists in the building, the nursing staff, the administration, what role should we be playing um, in really like intervening, invoking the, the Baker Act? You know, I even think about when the resident goes out inappropriately, maybe for, or appropriately for altered mental status, but now they're Baker Act in the ER. Like, how do, what, what role should we be playing in, in that process? And um, I'll start with you, Dr. Sullivan, and then I'm going to bring Dr. Diaz back in and <laughs> we'll go back around. I think that's a fantastic opportunity that exists to really clearly delineate what quote unquote normal is, what is the baseline? Because so many times that is the, that's the fundamental question. And we, you know, kind of taking myself out of the nursing facility perspective and putting me in the emergency department perspective, uh, there are many times where we're faced with a patient who does have uh, later stage dementia and is in the emergency room with zero behavioral concerns whatsoever. You know, there's nothing observed. And the most important piece of the, the puzzle in those kinds of scenarios is really understanding how far they've come from their baseline, what is different and what happened. And so I, I would say that from, a, from an institutional perspective, ensuring that that communication is, is intact, those, those pathways are really resilient enough to survive the, sets, the staffing shortages. And you know, some facilities I've seen get a lot of success with uh, periodic you know, monthly discussions about cohorts of patients that, that really speak to their story. That's less about their treatment. It's more about their background, their personality, their behaviors. And so in, in those kinds of settings, it's great. It's a good opportunity for us on the acute care side to find a, a nurse or, or a, a tech who says, you know, I don't know this patient, but I know from hearing about her that this is what she normally does. And this doesn't sound very far off. So I'm not sure if maybe this is, you know, more normal for her. And, and if this is related to her dementia and in that case, then a psychiatric hospitalization technically is illegal. And, and so we're, you know, we're very limited with the, the, the potential, you know, limitations that exist in that regard. And that's, you know, in, in defense of the, the Baker Act and the Florida Mental Health Act, that's the purpose of it. Uh, that's, the reason Senator Baker actually implemented it was to place protections and checks and balances uh, to, to ensure that vulnerable people suffering from mental illness are protected. Thank you. And now, a word from our sponsor. Your residents who have a neurologic condition or brain injury may not be crying because of their depression. It may be pseudo-bulbar effect. For resources related to screening for PBA, please visit pbainfo.org. And now back to our podcast. Dr. Diaz, anything to add? 
Yeah, I agree with everything uh, that he says. And, you know, uh, I, I've always been that common sense guy. I tend to not look at the literature all that much anymore. Common sense because of my experience through the medical field. And I think that that says a lot because it allows me to get to know my patient, which is of the utmost importance because I know what their behaviors are like for the most part. And if a nurse calls me with an unusual behavior of that patient, which is usual, the first thing is not to belittle that nurse or say, oh, you're crazy, that's the normal, is to understand that you want that in place because that is a safeguard. Someone who sees something, they should be calling you. Um, but knowing your patient is of the utmost importance. Second of all is the communication issue, which was brought up by Dr. Sullivan, uh, is to have good communications with the psych people on the for the facility. Now, I am in a, an unusual situation where I am in my building 24 hours. Well, I'm not in the building 24 hours, but I'm there every day. I'm on call 24 hours, so I don't go anywhere else. So I know my patients intimately, and I wish other uh uh, organizations would do the same thing because it's very different from a doctor going to four different facilities uh, who doesn't really know the patients all that well because they're, you know, they've got so many uh, patients in different buildings. But I know them very well. On the other hand, uh, the nurses that come in who are new will see a behavior that they deem that is very normal for a dementia patient when it turns out to be something very abnormal for that patient. I've had that situation as well. So the landscape in our particular business has changed dramatically since COVID 2020. And I think that was the sentinel event because we had nurses get up and leave without saying anything. We had nurses get sick and never come back. We're still experiencing that shortage to this very day. So the, the most important thing I say is to get to know your patients intimately in the sense that you know what their behaviors are, you know what the changes that have occurred over the last couple of weeks or a month, and good communication skill with the staff and with the psych uh, people, the psychologists, the social workers, and so forth, that are also in contact with the patient. And last but not least, I always find the person that has the most contact with the patient, and that's the CNA. And the CNAs who see them every day, feed them, change them, know them intimately, I go to them because they know, hey, in fact, in a good situation, they come to me and they go, hey, so-and-so is not acting right. And I know that they know because they're with them on a daily basis. So that's that's basically what I think is important. I thank you for that. Um, Amina, if you could weigh in and maybe tell us how do we empower the nursing staff our CNAs to really lead in this space because everything that both you, Dr. Diaz and Dr. Sullivan, everything is right. And I think about those instances where the CNA really told me what was going on. <laughs> you know, the, the manager would say, oh, this person is acting up. And the CNA was like, you know, this has been happening, A, B, C. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, here's my differential. And none of it needs to go, mean that the person needs to go be admitted for a 72 hour hold in a psychiatric hospital. Amina? Yes, yes. Um, Dr. Sullivan and Dr. Diaz really touched on some great points. Yes, we have to empower the staff. How we start with that is by education. We have to educate them. So we they need to, uh, we have to educate them how they're gonna get those information about the patient that's made the patient unique. That's what we talk about patient-centered care. And one thing Dr. Diaz would just say, 
a behavior, what somebody considered to be normal on one person might not be normal on the other one. Or what you think that's abnormal, hey, that's being the person normal. So the, the, the work starts with us, with clinician, by training our um, staff, nurses and CNA. So how you would know the difference? What the system, what is the protocol that we have in place that people can spot on, on a change? And then from the change, what needs to be done, the assessment before, like you were saying, you need the CNA to help you with your differential diagnosis because they give you some very important because you're going to have some um, positive or negative you know, behavior, but which one really that match that that says here, that's a mental or that says that's a medical. So it start with us, that's one thing. The other thing, it's very good, especially when we have Alzheimer and dementia patients that cannot communicate with us, things that they used to love doing and things that they hate to do that can trigger the behavior. So that's why it's good whenever we can have their loved one, whether it's family member, friends, or, or um, a caregiver, participate from the get-go, you know, with the plan of care. So then we can communicate that CNA and nurses. And also staffing, we just said, I think that was Dr. Sullivan brought that um, point. Yes, I can do all that with my staff. What about when I have somebody that come from the agency? They don't know the patient and they are the one that's going to call Dr. Sullivan. So then it's up to us also, we can have those system in place before the nurse call, the supervisor, since the supervisor most of the time is part of the staff, call the supervisor to assess. Then the supervisor can see like, this is really knowing this patient, whatever somebody's new, look at the care plan. That's another thing, those care plan, those beautiful care plan that are there, sometimes people don't look, they have valuable information. Most of the time for the CNA, we put those information in their codex. People, people need to know because we're caring for this patient 24-7. It can't be only the 7 to 3 that knows those information because when they have an outbreak on 11 to 7, somebody's supposed to know where. So there's a lot of work that we need to do. Yes, we have a lot of challenges, but from us, by doing the education and empower, and also when somebody do a good job, de-escalate, use the intervention, you know, go ahead and say so-and-so, you did a very good job, you know, give them a card so they can know next time there is something, they can help somebody else, or you can probably identify people from the building that's really like mentally that can help because you have residents that you will see this staff talk to them, they know how to calm them down. And the other one, don't really have that patience. So you can identify those people and help with the education, the empowerment, and let them know when they do the good job and we are there to support them. That will help greatly with having unnecessary Baker Act, if I don't want to say some illegal Baker Act. Let me put a pin there because I want to, I want to know, let's say the resident that they've gone out under the Baker Act and now the, the hospital wants to send them back. Karen, can you talk about that question that you probably get all the time? Do we need to take the person back? Do we have to take the person back because they've been under Baker Act? Okay. Um, yeah, I get that question a lot. And you know, we also get a lot of bad publicity that we patient dump by putting them uh, through the Baker Act 
and that does happen, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to make sure that the resident gets the care they need. When they're ready to come back, it's always been the law, the federal law particularly, that you can only refuse to take them back if you can't provide care to them. When you, leave, when you send somebody to the hospital under both state and federal law, you transfer them to the hospital because it's another healthcare setting. When they're ready to come back and you anticipate they will come back, and you have to anticipate that in most cases, if they're ready to come back and you don't uh, want to bring them back, you have to actually discharge them. So you have to have one of the reasons set out in both state and federal law for refusing to take them back. And one of those, the one that most likely would result in a Baker Act, is because you can't give them the care that they need. Now, how do you determine if you can give them the care? What the surveyors will be looking for is why you can't give them that care. If you brought them in the facility and they were in the same condition they are now, um, or a little bit worse, but you found there's a trigger that's causing that, their adjustment or whatever, you assess the resident when you brought them in, you assessed your facility as to the resources you had available to them, and you brought them in. Now you're refusing to take them back, which is considered their home. And if you're refusing to take them back, you have to show strong evidence that you're not going to be able to care for them. How do you do that? You go to the hospital and re do a really true reassessment of the person. Maybe something's happened that Dr. Sullivan or Dr. Diaz can explain has changed their condition such that they're no longer appropriate for nursing home care or an assisted living if it's a mental health facility. And you have to prove that their condition at the time they want to come back, you can't take them back or they would be a, a danger to themselves or others. And that's a very hard burden to meet. And if you don't meet it, you're gonna have to take them back anyway. And what have you done to your resident? You've left your resident in some kind of limbo or whatever's going on, feeling that they're not wanted. I think that emphasizes the importance of doing the assessment up front when you take them in your building, and especially with the nursing shortage. If you don't have the kind of staff that can care for a behavior problem, don't take the resident. You're not doing yourself a favor. You're not doing the resident a favor. And uh, somewhere along the way, if you have to have them Baker acted, you're gonna have to take them back. Very rarely does CMS recognize a reason why you can't take them back. They, they feel that if you've got the resources to take them in the first place, you should have the resources to work with them once they've been stabilized. So what about those residents who, um, or the patient in the hospital, and they're now looking for a SNF to place them in, but they've been under Baker Act, 72 hour hold is over, they're medically cleared, do you, what, 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 um, what does a facility need to do to say yes or no in that situation? Well, in the first place, if they need long-term care and their mental health is stabilized, by regulation, facilities are long-term care providers. And so they should be able to take them back. If they need more care than they're able to give, there are specialized facilities in Florida where you can uh, transfer that person if that's what they need. The bottom line is when you transfer them to the, to the hospital, they're you're still your resident 
and you're the one that's going to bear the burden of finding a safe discharge for them if you're not going to bring them back to your facility. So that's why I think it's so important that you do the assessment up front. If you can't take them up front, uh, they're only going to be worse down the road. And you you want the resident to get better. You don't want them to get worse. And you need the staff and the resources to do that. So let me ask you guys this. And um, we could take this in whichever order. You know, I, I, I'm just curious. Do we need to rethink how we are delivering behavioral health care in our SNFs? Is that what, you know, the main crux of this is? How are we assessing and really delivering that care? Amina, you're nodding your head vigorously, so you get to start off there. <laughs> yes. Honestly, that was part of the reason I was, I kind of was, you know, um, lobbying part of the um, staffing, the modernization to change the staffing. It's because I'm pretty sure you talk about all operator or clinician, they will tell you. We have now, if we even want to go back the last whatever five or, five or six years, you will see we have more younger um, residents and more patients with psychiatric disorders in our facility. Not the same thing 20 years ago when I start, you have those little elderly that either cannot care for themselves or somebody that's just there for therapy and go, no, you will find a lot. So now, yes, I agree with Karen. It starts from assessing the patient that we are bringing, looking at the facility assessment. With your facility assessment, we should be able to make sure the education that the staff needs is provided. Now, going back to the staffing I was talking about before, we could not count any mental health tech in, your, in our staffing. That's one thing we can do right now that it would help greatly. We have the people that has the proper training to deal with the patient that has those mental disorder that we know from time to time that would have exhibit the behaviors. Because just like Karen say, not because I Baker at this patient, that I send this patient to the hospital, I am done with it. Because if I accept to take care of you before now you become mine, I would say just like your children, they have a breakdown, you take them to the hospital, you don't leave them there and that's it. And like Karen was saying also, that's their home. And when you evicted people, okay, from their own room, their own environment, what happened to their psychological? So, and ACA is looking at all of that. So mental health, psychosocial needs have take a different turn in long-term care that us as provider and clinician need to pay particular attention and see what is the need on each and individual facility that we oversee and making sure they get what they need to care for this population. Because let's be real, these people need to be somewhere. We all would agree to that. Yeah. So by just sending them and don't take them back, we don't do them a, a, a service. And then going somewhere else, the patients start all over again. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Sanders. Yeah, Dr. Diaz, go ahead. Yeah, so it's a multifactorial answer because it's a multifactorial question because 
what's created this environment, uh, an environment of high stress, high demand, and not enough support is not being addressed. And I'm not even going to get into what I think about that because that's a whole other journal club meeting. But I'm going to give you one example of backing up what Amina said about training your staff to do the right things. And I brought this up in many other meetings before, but I'm going to bring it up again because I think it's very appropriate. I had a 25-year sheriff's deputy who came in to the skilled nursing facility as a patient. Now, his greatest thing was to show me his badge. He was so proud of his badge. And he would get up and try to go to the bathroom as anybody would, because that's ingrained in our brain since we were little children to get up and go to the bathroom, even though you can't walk, right? Our bodies are breaking down. Our mind doesn't recognize that fact. So every time he got up from his wheelchair, people would surround him to put him back in the wheelchair. Well, guess what happens when you surround the sheriff's deputy? He defends himself, and that's exactly what he did. And I would get the phone call every day that he is hitting the staff. And I said, well, listen to me. Next time he gets up, one person approach from the front, hold your hand out, call him by his name, and wait for him to shake your hand. And that's exactly what they did, problem solved. It's understanding the patient and why they do what they do. And unless we get to that point and we have a staff that is well-trained in that, right? Because we talk about the staff redirecting, redirecting, redirecting. You got to know your patient first. You got to know how to redirect them, but you've got to know the patient. The staff is overwhelmed. They're overworked. The nurses, all they do all day is pass medications. They get pulled from the carts. They'll go answer the phones and this and that. So it's a multifactorial problem that is going to require multifactorial uh, situations or uh, uh, solving uh, issues. However, knowing the patients, knowing how to deal with that. Uh, this is the perfect case where they surrounded him because they wanted him to be safe and they wanted to put him back in his wheelchair and he came out and he came out swinging because he's, he's a sheriff's deputy. It's what they do. Now you bring up a good point. I think that I, I've told my kids one of my worst fears is that they're, I'm going to be in the nursing home <laughs> and I'm going to ask for eggs for dinner and sushi for breakfast. And I'm going to end up with the IM dose of some psychotropic because people are <laughs> going to think that I'm crazy with it by every day. That's Dr. Right. Sullivan, you want to weigh in? Well, I, I will say as the, uh, as the subject matter expert, that is certifiable. So I'm, <laughs> I, I'm unfortunately going to have to back up your future facility. Uh, but I, I think you know. I think everybody is really speaking to where the where the crux of the issue is, and it's it's the explosive growth that we've seen in nursing care, nursing level utilization, without having the resources to really back it up. And you know, I say that with full awareness that I, I'm in an incredibly luxurious position as a federal employee, as a VA psychiatrist, because I have just a disgusting embarrassment of resources relative to the, the community level, the availability of, of psychiatric care, the availability of, of specialized mental health services is so challenging to, to really identify. And I think, I think Amina really speaks very well towards the importance of 
having staff who have that background. And whether it's discrete mental health techs, whether it's uh, people who are simply interested in being champions of that. Uh, Dr. Diaz, you know, just the simple shaking of the hand uh, of the sheriff's deputy, there's, there's actually a woman named Tifa Snow who's an occupational therapist that, that has fantastic resources. And, you know, that reminds me, that's one of her fundamental first steps that she uses. And, and I think when we, when we have that kind of opportunity to step back and think about how we're approaching these cases in a conscientious way, it, it can get us, you know, 90% of the way to, to where we want to be. One of the, one of the biggest things that I teach my uh, residents going through my, sorry, my psychiatric residents going through training is, is that if, if someone tells you that a patient is agitated, your very next question should be what exactly is happening? Because too often there, there's simply a label of agitation and there's a difference between someone waking up and having a later stage dementia and believing that they need to go to work or pick their mom up from the airport that's different than believing that the nursing staff have implanted a device in their body. And both of those are different than someone who is biting and kicking when we're providing pericare. And you know, each of those situations are gonna be treated completely differently, but until you have someone with the skills to really detect the, the resolution between those, it, you're, you're really struggling to, to find your way out. So how do we then, how should we be educating um, the, the clinicians, the medical directors, the nurses, how should we be educating them? Because that is, that does take skill. And to Dr. Diaz and Amita point, you have to know your resident. You, you need to know them. But what does that, that, that education look like before we get to this point? I think that's a great question. There's no easy answer to. That is uh, the, the most loaded of all the possible questions. Uh, I will say that what, uh, what, I, what I find to, to be very helpful, there are the specific individuals who have that long-term clinical experience. Every facility has those identified people who really bring just a, a nuclear bomb's worth of clinical experience. And that 20-year that nurse is, is often gonna, gonna bring so much more to the table that a, a, new, a new nursing grad uh, could really benefit from. And so the, the first line, I think, is always to really ensure that we are sharing those, sharing those pearls, sharing those strategies and those skills in a way that is uh, that is non-judgmental to Dr. Diaz's point. It's, it's not a, you know, telling somebody that you're, you know, you're too inexperienced to know that this is normal, or you're too inexperienced to know that this isn't normal. It's, it's being very proactive and non-judgmental in allowing people to really share their skills. One of the, one of the big struggles that we've seen uh, across healthcare, but particularly during the COVID pandemic is that sense of lost self-efficacy and that just sense of powerlessness. And so many times I think we miss opportunities for our identified leaders and our identified subject matter champions to 
take on an opportunity to, to really be a leader in that regard. It, maybe it's an informal role. Maybe it's, it's something that, that someone who's simply passionate about can take on. And, and it really empowers them to, to, to be able to maintain that. So we've had a question about um, the PASAR. And I know we talked about the assessments and, and all of those things. Karen, <laughs> can, you, can you explain that um, the federal PASAR mental health assessment requirements for our audience? I think um, there just needs to be a little bit more understanding about what that is and what that means. Sure. For PASAR is a pre-admission assessment uh, and resident review. And it's designed to identify mental health issues that a resident has before they go into the facility. There is a level one, which is kind of a, you know, just weed out the ones that aren't, that aren't concerns, and a level two. And the level two identifies uh, different mental, potential mental issues that this person may have. It triggers doing more of an analysis. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean a level two, that if a person shows a need for mental health services that they can't be in your facility, it, it identifies those needs and gives you part of that assessment process to identify the needs that that person has and determine if you can meet their needs in the building. And um, if you do it wrong and you do accept someone who needs services you can't supply, you're really doing yourself and them a disservice. But that's, the, that's during the in, initial, uh, it's done a few days, I don't remember the days, but a few days after admission. And it gives the facility uh, one more tool to determine if they can meet the needs of the resident. And secondly, if they do take that resident, it gives them some knowledge of what that resident's um, underlying problems may be that they need to further analyze in their care plan process and uh, have treated by the interdisciplinary team. I think good use of the PASAR will give you the opportunity to get someone like Dr. Diaz or Dr. Sullivan to look at that person to see if they might even do better being in a nursing home than they would in some other setting, or maybe they might even do well in an ALF that takes mental health residents. And so it's, it's an assessment tool that we're required to use. And I think it's an assessment tool that's very valuable to us for the things we're talking about in this discussion. Yeah, thank you. Now we, we are um, down to like the last 10 minutes. So if you have a question, if you have any comments, please you can either um, take yourself off mute, raise your hand, um, put it into the chat, but I wanna make sure everyone has time to ask all of their questions. I think the one thing that's sort of staying in my, the top of my mind is really around that educating piece of it and, and trying to um, lead people. I, I mean, I, I felt like I've gone into some buildings where it's like everybody's been on antibiotics for agitation. I'm like, what is that about? <laughs> or everybody, you know, like we, we've seen Ativan put into the water <laughs> in the building because everyone's on it. What what have we learned from the the psychotropic meetings, those those interactions? What have we learned about how we are caring for our residents um, and how to do a better job? And Dr. Sullivan, you could definitely start. To add to that, I I would also uh, 
highlight the, the facilities where 100% of the patients are diagnosed with schizophrenia simply to, to be able to, to prescribe antipsychotics. It's, it's a, you know, really, really distressing to see those 95 year olds who gain a new diagnosis of schizophrenia uh, at a, at a heartbeat. Uh, but I think you, you highlight one of the, one of the real tenuous balances that we have to maintain. It's the, the tendency to over, over prescribe in, in order to manage many of the behaviors that we, that we aren't able to manage non-pharmacologically and then the resulting legislation and restrictions that are placed on that. Uh, a prime example, uh, you know, from my personal experience came up recently where the, the, the chief of our geriatrics and extended care um, asked me to comment on what initiative I planned on pursuing to decrease the, the use of sedative hypnotics in our facility because we were uh, significantly above the, the, the state average. And, you know, part of that was me explaining to her that Unfortunately, Romelteon, which acts on the melatonin receptor, is included in that number. We, we have no patients on Ambien. We have no patients on Ativan. And, and so from a, you know, from a, from a monitoring perspective, you know, many of these metrics have, have positive value, but it's, it really puts us in a difficult uh, situation. So I, I do think that the, 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 prescribing guidelines that exist are, are a valuable place to start. The, the structured, structured approaches to, to these patients, uh, unfortunately, those you know, are not always very clear. They, they often will give four or five different options with no clear guidance as to specifically what to do in you know, X scenarios. So I, I don't think there is a clear answer, but I do think that you you highlight something that we should always be working towards. Thank you. Amina, Dr. Diaz, Karen, any thoughts? I, I want to make a quick comment about, first of all, there are patients that require these medications that are very appropriate. You also have the building on one side telling you, hey, we got to get these down because we've got to get you know our five-star rating and we got to do this which I don't really care about because my job is to take care of the patient and the building takes care of itself. But here's something interesting that I recently found out that the dose of Seroquel required to treat true psychosis is really high. Number one. So when you listen, when I see a patient coming from the hospital with Seroquel 25 at night, it tells me everything I need to know about why that drug was given because it doesn't exist. You know, if a patient is psychotic, I'm assuming that it's not just at night. <laughs> you see what I mean? But just unbelievably so, the dose to treat psychosis in Seroquel is in the hundreds of milligrams. So we got to remember that. So if it's a behavioral issue with dementia or a progressive neurological disorder, Parkinson's, whatever it may be, then we need to start looking at other things. But I'm telling you, when I see the 25 at night, that tells me everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Sullivan really brought a, a, a great point about um, the QI and QM when it comes to psycho, psychotropic med. Are we treating the patient or are we treating those QI and QM numbers? When in reality, it's supposed to be patient care of treating the patient. Now, sometimes where we fail is the documentation backing up what we're doing for the patient and why it's important. 
And that's why sometimes people think because the state gonna question you about something, you have supposed to have the answer they wanted to hear. No, you can give them the answer that is appropriate for that patient. And it's really a team collaboration between the psychiatrist, psychologist, and the facility, you know, being on the same page about that patient care and be able to speak to it. That's the story of the patient. This is what the patients need. And this is why, but we all have, and sometimes we have the disconnected there. So Dr. Sellefren, like you cannot test, they will call you and say, I want you to decrease this because of blah, blah, blah. But you know why this patient needs to be in it. And the facility staff need to be on that same page knowing that's what my patient needs for ABCD. And just like we say, we keep on saying it, education, education. Two things I'm gonna share. Um, Dr. Sanders, you brought, uh, you, you touched on that. You say, I'll go around, there's so many patients and antibiotic. That will go for the same thing, Dr. Sullivan and Diaz. You will go and see because this patient either didn't sleep last night or having one behavior, there is a psychotropic order. Well, from a clinical um, point, what I'm trying to do with my um, facilities, which like yesterday, I just did another meeting and explain to him I'm important, just like because everybody's on electronic health record. So every day you come to work, you can see who they order in antibiotics, who they order in psychotropic. Yes, it's you, we're gonna, you know, educate the staff, we're gonna do everything. But who is the checker of the checker? So you empower them and all that, but there is a way of making sure. Okay, we have the surveillance form for the antibiotic. What was the criteria that's documented? Is it appropriate? Because within that 24 hours, we can make sure before we wait at the end of the month for the log and the patient already take, you know, there's an antibiotic unnecessary to Dr. Sender's point. And also the psychotropic is the same thing. So also, we need to have a point where we know psychotropic are ordered for patients that's really needed and they are documented and making sure we're monitoring it. So the state have new way how they really be more on top of us with the psychotropic, but it's an hour and two and showing we're making sure proper assessment is being done, proper documentation and why, and there is somebody. Just like we have antibiotic stewardship program, there is psychotropic stewardship program, which I would advise everybody to try to enroll. Right now it's not mandatory, but we know antibiotic is. So you know why? A year, two years, we're talking psychotropic stewardship probably will be mandatory, but <laughs> it's good right now if we can start implementing that because we know years, years ago, many of us start doing antibiotic stewardship program way before it was become mandatory. So I think with psychotropic, that's the same thing we're seeing, but we need to really, those facility and everybody really need to know, we care for mental health um, patient then they're gonna need treatment, but we just have an all and working with the psychiatrist, making sure the patient are receiving the proper treatment, proper medication, and it's been documented and the outcome is documented. So before we go, we did get a question in the chat about what options can we find to get an exception from triggering a flag when if we're thinking about the metrics appropriately and using um, psychotropics effectively. You know, how do we get that hall pass? Yeah, Dr. Uh, Sullivan, go ahead. I'm sorry, it wasn't on mute. I do think that there are, those actually are opportunities where uh, we have, for instance, a patient who has a legitimate psychiatric need. 
that might have gone undiagnosed or misrecognized. Many times there is, uh, there may be a patient with po severe post-traumatic stress disorder uh, for which certain medications may be more appropriate than they would be for simple insomnia. And so in cases like that, you, you have a little bit more flexibility to, to, make those, to make those prescribing choices. Now, I, I do think that the real solution is, is advocacy for um, legislative revision to create a system that allows us to practice clinically. Now, obviously, that's, uh, that's optimistic pie in the sky. We, we all know how, how successful that is. Uh, the Baker Act statutes changed in Ju the July 2020, and the form hasn't even been updated yet. So we, we know the time frame that, that this occurs in. Uh, one of you know one of the things I, I always encourage people to do is is simply document, document as effectively as possible your clinical opinion, uh, with you know with uh, particularly as it applies to medical legal liability. Uh, Karen would certainly be able to speak uh, much more eloquently to this, but my the the typical feedback that I give people is that an an attorney can always argue errors of fact, but they they really struggle arguing uh, errors in your clinical judgment. And, and it makes it much, much more difficult. And, and you're in a much better position to really justify the reasons for your, your clinical opinion. And the documentation, we've heard documentation over and over again. It's absolutely critical for a number of reasons. One is from an attorney standpoint to defend yourself. But the other is also the more you document the reasons for why you're making these judgment calls, the easier it is for people along the continuity of care to take care of these people and, and take care of them properly and not give them uh, a misdiagnosis or an unrecognized condition or to give them the wrong medication. And uh, documentation is absolutely critical. Dr. Diaz, I didn't know if you wanted to comment as well. Uh, yeah, very quickly, it, it is appropriate to give an antipsychotic drug on someone who was severely agitated in the middle of the night. However, it requires direct follow-up the next day to figure out what the problem is. And because what tends to happen is you put them on the drug and the drug stays. So always follow up, but it is quite appropriate. If somebody is severely agitated and throwing punches and getting out of bed and doing all these things that are very harmful to the patient or to a resident, very, very appropriate to give an antipsychotic medication and or a sedative or something to that effect until you reevaluate that patient as soon as possible. So I just wanted to make that comment. Yeah, and I think we would all agree documentation the nurses need to be documenting what happened you need to be documenting what happened you need to document the follow-up i thank you you guys have been amazing this has been like i i said at the beginning a powerhouse and uh you have all delivered and i i really am very excited for this conversation and i i it, it was everything that i wanted and more so thank you um Please take care, and if you, if anyone on the call has any additional questions, please do not hesitate to email um, us. We will get them to the panelists. Uh, thank you all. References for this podcast and links to the previous recordings can be found at paltc.org/journalclub.
If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.